Up This Week reorganizes coverage on Coinbase, federal agencies maneuver to get federal No Surprise Act litigation before friendly judges, Reorg publishes analyses of potential credit recoveries in Talent Energy and Bosch Health after lower than expected IPO of the Bosch Lawn business. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring the latest developments in high yield to stress out in bankruptcy. I'm David Zupkis. Julian Boulan will be joining me for the Week in Review. In light of the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, for this week's Deep Dive, we offer a replay of our March webinar, where Eric Shen Qureshi joins Fiona Huntress and Matthew Getz of Palace Partners LLP to provide an overview of Russian sanctions frameworks and examine the impact of sanctions on financial obligations owed to and by Russian parties. It's Friday, May 20th. Reorg initiated coverage this week of cryptocurrency exchange Coinbase, which is committed to protecting EBITDA losses up to negative $500 million on an annual basis instead of would manage costs in a prolonged downturn. The company maintains a healthy balance of $6.1 billion of unrestricted cash as of March 31st, which amount does not include customer custodial funds. However, Coinbase burned almost $800 million of free cash flow in the first quarter and is guiding to higher costs and sequential declines in most operating metrics. In a letter to employees, the company said it would slow hiring after the number of full-time employees has nearly tripled over the past year. In 2021, Coinbase raised a total of $3.4 billion of debt across three issues, $2 billion of 2028 and 2031 senior unsecured notes, and $1.4 billion of 0.5% convertible notes. The company's 3.375% guaranteed senior notes due 2028 were recently indicated at a bid of 69, according to Solve Advisors, down from approximately 77 on May 9th prior to the company's first quarter report and down from 89 on March 31st. The 0.5% convertible notes were recently indicated at a bid of 65, according to Solve, down from approximately 95 on March 31st. Coinboys describes its technology as enabling any person or business with an internet connection to discover, transact, and engage with crypto assets and decentralized applications. The company serves both retail and institutional customers. Coinbase's revenue fluctuates with the amount of transaction revenue generates. However, only certain of the company's costs appear to fluctuate with the amount of transaction revenue reported. Instead, the majority of costs have increased in all periods, regardless of the amount of revenue Coinbase generates. Coinbase measures performance based on users, transactions, and the assets on its platform. Monthly transaction users, or MTUs, have fallen twice sequentially since 2020. In the third quarter of 2021, which was one quarter after a steep drop in the price of Bitcoin, and in the company's most recent quarter, these two periods also experienced a steep drop in revenue, EBITDA, and cash flow. The company's guidance for the second quarter anticipates a slowdown sequentially in top-line operating statistics, including trading volume and MTUs. In terms of expenses, consistent with prior periods, transaction expenses appear variable, changing with volume. The company said it expects to stay in the low 20% area as a percent of revenue, but technology development and GNA costs are expected to grow sequentially, even with the expected decline in volume. The federal agencies defending their interim final rule governing arbitration under the Federal No Surprises Act and out-of-network providers fighting the rule are engaged in procedural maneuvering to get the dispute before friendly federal judges ahead of the anticipated release of revised regulations by the agencies this summer. On May 12th, the agencies asked a Texas district judge to transfer venue of a recently filed air ambulance operator suit challenging the rule to the Washington, D.C. federal court, hearing a similar action filed by the Association of Air Medical Services, or AAMS. The Texas judge handling the new action struck down a portion of the interim arbitration rule in February in a case brought by the Texas Medical Association, or TMA. The D.C. judge in the AAMS case has said he will likely not rule on the validity of the rule until the new rules are issued. According to the agencies, the Texas suit filed by LifeNet on April 27th is virtually identical to the D.C. AAMS litigation. The agencies suggest in their motion to transfer that LifeNet is actually pursuing the Texas action on behalf of business partner Air Methods, which filed declarations in both the AAMS suit in Washington, D.C. and the new Texas action. Citing statements by LifeNet and Air Methods on their websites, the agencies conclude that Air Methods is party to an alternative delivery model with LifeNet, whereby a national entity such as Air Methods handles the billing and realizes all profits or losses from medical billing, while a local partner is paid a fixed fee. The agencies note that another air ambulance operator participating in the AMS case, re- reorganized PHI Health, filed a substantially similar new challenge in a Kentucky district court on April 29th. On Wednesday, LifeNet responded to the agency's motion to transfer and filed a motion for summary judgment invalidating the controversial QPA presumption portion of the arbitration rule as applied to air ambulance operators. LifeNet urges the Texas judge to apply his holding in the TMA case to air ambulance services because neither the arbitration rule nor the No Surprises Act distinguish between air ambulance services and other out-of-network medical care for arbitration purposes. 
Weirk published an analysis on Thursday that estimates recoveries for Talon Energy unsecured bondholders that participate in the $1.3 billion rights offering under the debtor's restructuring support agreement. Talon's RSA contemplates the $1.3 billion rights offering. However, the rights offering can be adjusted to a minimum of $600 million and a maximum of $1.65 billion, depending on both credit ratings assigned at exit, as well as projected net debt and minimum liquidity. Also in Talon news, a review of public records in Luzerne County, Pennsylvania, suggests that the Talon Energy debtors may have grounds to seek avoidance of a mortgage on their key asset, the Susquehanna Steam Electric Station that secures the debtor's $848 million first lien accordion credit facility. If you'd like to access REORC's full in-depth analysis of talent credit recoveries, please reach out to a REORG representative. According to a REORG analysis published this week, Bausch Health could reduce leverage to 7.2 times following a lower-than-expected IPO of the company's Bausch Lomb business. CEO Joseph Papa recently reiterated the company's commitment to delever Bausch Pharma to a range of 6.5 to 6.7 times, which is in line with previous guidance. However, the company has since sold equity in Bausch Lomb at a price below initial guidance and the company has decided to delay its planned IPO of Salta, given current market conditions. To offset the lower proceeds from the 10% sale of Bausch Lomb equity, Papa noted that Bausch Health would have the ability to monetize an additional 10% stake which the company would use to pay down debt. Newly appointed Bausch Health CEO Thomas Appio said, We have the flexibility to monetize an additional 10% remaining stake of BNL equity and launch Salta's IPO when the market conditions are right, as we target a total net leverage ratio of 6.5 to 6.7 times, as we previously committed. At current market prices of $17 per share for Bausch Lomb as of market close on Monday, May 16th, an additional 10% sale would result in $595 million of proceeds. However, even after selling the additional stake in BNL, in order for Bausch Pharma to achieve a 6.6 times midpoint net leverage target, Solta shares would have to sell at a significant premium to public comparables. For Reorg's full in-depth analysis of Bausch Health's re- recent IPO, please reach out to a Reorg representative. Top red stories this week included Morgan Stanley employees urges New York court to dismiss Moby's Concordato interference. Action says court lacks jurisdiction. Claims are conclusory. Market volatility provides opportunity for patient investors in alternative credit market. Non-debtor releases take another hit in Delaware. Latam UCC red pencils the voter rolls. Nordic Aviation flies under the radar in a fight over post-reorg litigation funding in Sanchez. Diebold Nixdorf could replace RCF facility with larger, better collateralized loan. Lenders consider options including priming distressed exchange. And now here's Kathy from Los Angeles with the week ahead. Hello all, this is Kathy Tall from Los Angeles. Here's the week ahead. A week-long trial will begin on Monday, May 23rd in the dueling litigation between the Asbestos Personal Injury Trust established in the North American Refactories Company's Chapter 11 case and Honeywell over whether the company is meeting its evergreen obligations to fund asbestos claims. On Tuesday, May 24th, there will be an omnibus hearing in the Johnson & Johnson subsidiary Chapter 11 case of LTL Management. Judge Michael Kaplan is slated to hear issues related to retention applications filed by the official committee of talk claimants, among other matters. Also on Tuesday, May 24th, is a hearing in Lehman Brothers. The SIPA trustee will ask the court to approve a liquidating trust agreement to establish a trust as the penultimate step in the trustee's closure plan. That same day, in the Salem Harbor Power Development case, the debtor's largest unsecured creditor, Iberdrola Energy Projects, will seek 2004 discovery from the debtors, its board, officers, and managers, as well as several Oak Tree entities. IEP says there may be valuable litigation claims against former insiders and the Oak Tree entities related to the debtor's termination of its construction contract. On Wednesday, May 25th, the Alpha Ladam management debtors will be in court to modify their confirmed plan of liquidation with what they have said are non-material changes for accounting of certain intercompany claims under local law. On Thursday, May 26th, all-year holdings will seek approval of proposed dip financing to be provided by Paragraph Partners. Paragraph Partners is the plan investor under the debtor's exit transaction and is the winning bidder slated to purchase Series C note holders' interest in the mortgage and loan for the debtor's co-owned William Vale Hotel. Under the party's agreement, Paragraph Partners will also acquire the debtor's 50% ownership interest. Ruby Pipeline will have a second day hearing that same day. The debtors entered bankruptcy without a firm exit path, but with sufficient cash in hand to not need additional financing. The second day hearing was continued from earlier this month. Thursday, May 26, will also see Just Energy seek authorization of its proposed plan of compromise and arrangement in, the, in its Canadian company's creditors' arrangement proceedings. Broadly speaking, the proposed plan embodies a plan support agreement with holders of more than $1 billion of secured and unsecured debt and would provide for a recapitalization of the entities. As for earnings, they will be reported on Wednesday, May 25th by Seedrill, followed on Thursday, May 26th by Macy's. That's it for me on this Friday, 
May 20th. Fun fact, May 20th marks the day that shoes were first made for both right and left feet back in 1310, more than 700 years ago. Now back to you in New York. In light of the ongoing conflict between Russia and Ukraine, for this week's Deep Dive, we offer a replay of our March webinar where Rear Shen Qureshi joins Fiona Huntress and Matthew Getz of Palace Partners LLP to provide an overview of Russian sanctions frameworks and examine the impact of sanctions on financial obligations owed to and by Russian parties. So, hello again. Uh, I'm Sean Qureshi, a legal analyst in Reorg's London office, and I will be the uh, moderator of today's discussion. We've had more than 300 registrations for this morning's webinar, so thank you to everyone who has logged in for the live broadcast. Uh, today, we're extremely fortunate to be joined by uh, Fiona Huntress and Matt Getz, both partners at law firm Palace Partners LLP. Fiona Huntress is described in Legal 500 as a brilliant partner, a great tactician who knows the law inside out, and Fiona's practice focuses on litigation and broader dispute strategies. Her, her portfolio encompasses high-profile finance litigation, restructuring and insolvency, related litigation and sovereign debt disputes. So welcome, Fiona, great to have you here. Um, we're also joined by Matt Sketz. Matt is named by Who's Who's Legal as a leading investigative lawyer. Matt is recognized for his financial crime and anti-corruption expertise. He is a seasoned expert on sanctions, government and internal investigations, white collar defense, anti-corruption, asset freezing, and data and privacy. Welcome to you, Matt. It's great to have both of you on with us today. Uh, to all of our viewers, uh, thank you for joining us uh, today. Uh, I'd like to remind you that there is a question widget box at the bottom of your screen in which you can ask the panelists questions. Uh, we'll try our best to answer your questions during the discussion, and hopefully there should be some time left at the end for uh, further questions. Now, uh, to the topic of today's webinar. Western sanctions on Russia have historically struggled to act as a credible deterrent against Russian aggression. However, the new measures announced in February and March of this year by the EU, the, EU's, the US and the UK in response to uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine are the most far-reaching seen in modern times. Uh, they, of course, have come too late to prevent the invasion of Ukraine, but certainly seem capable of causing a financial mayhem in Russia. We've seen the sanctions have already had wide-reaching effects from affecting Russian-owned sports clubs like Chelsea FC, drastically weakening the ruble, and threatening the Russian central bank's, bank's foreign, uh, foreign exchange reserves. In this webinar, we will focus our discussion on how these sanctions affect the financial world. We will be exploring the practical imp impact of sanctions on loan obligations with Russian parties. So Matt, perhaps you could uh, start us off. And let's start with the sanction frameworks. Could you tell us um, what are the reasons for the sanctions and what type of sanctions are in place? Sure. Um, there, it's always always said that sanctions was a way of using the law to do politics, and I think that's still the case. Um, as a general matter, sanctions are used by governments to achieve their political means, either instead of diplomatic efforts or military efforts or in addition to. Um, as it happens, the UK, after Brexit, put a whole sanctions framework into place where it set out the various reasons for which it could impose sanctions, one of which is to comply with UN obligations, because a lot of sanctions come from the UN, but of course the UN will not have sanctions against Russia because Russia is a permanent member of the Security Council. So then there's a whole other raft of reasons for which the UK government can bring sanctions, such as the interests of international peace and security, respect for democracy and the rule of law, or furthering a foreign policy objective of the government of the UK, which, as you can see, is pretty broad, so you can fit almost anything in there. As for the Russia sanctions themselves, because you have to state a purpose for every particular set of sanctions, the reason is to encourage Russia to seize actions destabilizing Ukraine or undermining or threatening the territorial integrity, sovereignty, or independence of Ukraine. And that came into the law with the Russia regulations, which you know were, were put there in 2019, and that was basically um, a following on of sanctions which have been in place since 2014 with the invasion of Crimea. Now, obviously, we're not here to discuss politics and so on, so, but clearly, um, the sanctions have only had a limited effect so far. Nonetheless, um, part of it is to, part of the reason is to cause pain for the country that's doing things that you don't want to, to see if those, if those sanctions will have some sort of effect, even in an indirect and oblique way. 
Um, and one of the points of sanctions, which is where they differ, I would say, from diplomatic and military means, is that sanctions tend to call on the resources and actions of the private sector in the various Western countries and tend to affect them as well, you know, much more than others, which is why, which is why we're having this conversation. Um, the governments want the private sector, especially the financial sector, to help them isolate the foreign country. Um, now, Russia is a particularly complicated area. Um, I started doing sanctions work relating to Iran um, about, I like the word seasoned, um, 10 plus years ago. Um, and that was in some, ways, in some ways simpler because Iran wasn't a very close part of the world. The economy and Iranian banks weren't doing, any, weren't doing uh, anything particularly related to the West. But Russian banks are different. And if we could put up a slide in which I'm going to show some of the different types of sanctions that, uh, that, are, that are in place. Um, thank you, Rebecca. This slide, this is, by the way, I know this looks big and daunting and complex, and I will say that this is not even close to all of the different types of sanctions there are, but these are sanctions only on Russian banks. Um, and as you can see, there are kind of six different types of sanctions. The first in the leftmost column is the most important, but it's far from the only important, one causes generally an asset freeze. Um, and in each column, I've shown the US, the UK, and the EU as to whether they've put, which ones of them have put sanctions on there. Um, they clearly, there is a lot of similarities, but they're not identical. And I'm not going to discuss the law of each of them because then we'd need three hours rather than one. But where there is an asset freeze under UK law, that basically means two things. One, any assets only, uh, belonging to the person that has been sanctioned must be frozen, can't do anything with them without a license, which we'll talk about later. And also, you cannot provide funds or economic resources, and economic resources is anything that can be turned into a fund, to a sanctioned person. You can't pay them money, you can't send them goods, you can't give them equipment, you can't extend a loan. Um, and as we see, this affects a lot of leading Russian banks. Um, the second one on, is what we call capital market restrictions. And these have mainly been in place since 2014. And there actually aren't many new ones. The restrictions there are, one, that you can't provide loans or credit to people subject to the capital market restrictions. Um, and also, you can't trade in their securities, in their securities that were issued after 2014, their shares or bonds. Um, this is mainly in the market already because, as I say, it's been in place since 2014 and there are not a lot of, uh, there are hardly any new ones. Um, going quite quickly through the rest, uh, there is an exclusion from SWIFT, the messaging service, against, an, against a number of banks. Importantly, not against Sparebank, and Sparebank is also not subject to an asset freeze. That's because Sparebank is the bank that is used uh, to facilitate Russia's sales of gas to, to, to Europe and the West. Um, then there are, and Sparebank is uh, subject to a ban on correspondent banking in the United States. And then there are a couple of restrictions that relate to the Central Bank of Russia, which I'm not going to talk about in, 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 in this session. Um, something I want to point out is this is a very timely and topical issue, obviously. Um, the reason why I have five banks in orange rather than in yellow on the asset freeze column is because they just became subject to an asset freeze this morning, which means anybody, including any of the people you know, on the, on the call who have dealings with these banks, will need to take very quick steps relating to, uh, relating to banks, um, including freezing their assets and, in some cases, reporting uh, the assets that are frozen. So I think that goes through, you know, how, but not too great uh, depth, what uh, all the reasons why and the types of sanctions. Thanks, Matt. Um, that's very interesting indeed. Perhaps now you could, uh, you know, explain a little bit more what the both the sources are of these sanctions and also yeah, what the juris jurisdictional consequences are. And then also, as you've, as you've touched on, you know, who, who are the targets? Again, I'll focus on the UK rather than uh, the US and the EU. Um, the U but, but the US and EU are important as well, even for the UK. Um, so sanctions in the UK are basically put together by the Foreign Office and the Treasury. Um, and in particular, in the Treasury, there's an office called the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation. And they consider um, which companies and which persons fulfill certain criteria. Um, the criteria under the Russian sanctions were 
very broad and they have become even broader. Um, basically, if you are a person who is involved in obtaining a benefit from or supporting the government of Russia, you can be sanctioned. And that's not just anybody who works for the government of Russia. It includes anybody who carries on business in a sector of strategic significance to Russia, which includes the financial services sector. So basically, any you know any 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 bank you know can be subject to sanctions in that regard. There so are that, that's strategic significance. How how broadly is that being 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 interpreted? Extremely broadly. I mean, you know, we will see that there are some small, quite small banks that are in there. There are some construction companies that are in there. Um, if there is somebody that really is just a private person not doing anything at all, it may be subject to a challenge, but sanctions are notoriously hard to challenge uh, before the law because they are so political and because they serve foreign policy objectives. Um, most recently, and when I say recently, I mean like a week ago, uh, the government passed a, a new law, the Economic Crime Transparency Act, where basically it said that the government can also sanction somebody even if they don't have evidence that they are involved in those languages, as long as the EU, the US, Canada, or Australia has sanctioned them. So a wow. whole bunch of people have become sanctioned for that reason, including just as of this morning, you know, people like Alpha Bank and Gazprom Bank, you know, so the government says because others are sanctioning them, we can sanction them as well. So it's uh, there's a lot out there. Okay, so we know the sources, we know who's being targeted. What are the penalties for uh, non-compliance, Matt? Perhaps you could talk us through those. Well, um, it's worse for individuals than for companies, but it's not great either way. Um, for, for an individual who has committed an offence, the penalty can be up to seven or ten years prison. Now, that's not going to happen often. Um, and really, I guess it won't affect many of the people who are on this webinar. For companies, the penalty is up to £1 million or where funds have been provided um, improperly, 50% of the relevant funds. Um, that said, there has not been huge enforcement in the UK so far. The United States has been a big enforcer over the years. And there have have been lots of big sanctions penalties, including you know, some in the, frankly, in the tens of billions. You know, one remembers with BNP Paribas, for example. Um, the UK has had the power to issue these fines, but so far in the last, in the last four years, um, I was just checking, there have been six fines, of which four of them were £50,000 or under. The largest fine, one was for 140000 and the largest fine was against Standard Chartered Bank for about £20 million. Um, as we saw, Sparebank was in the list of companies that you can't lend to. They loaned money to a Turkish subsidiary of Sparebank that Standard Chartered thought, mistakenly, but possibly not dishonestly, they thought that um, there was an exemption because it was connected to EU trade and they got it wrong. You know, so they had to pay 20 million for it. This shows that, you know, real fines are available and there can be real jeopardy for people. Um, but those numbers show that overall the UK implementation on the, you know, on the fine side has not been that large. There is a but and a very important but for companies in the regulated sector. Um, the FCA has been much more active than OFSI and the Treasury in going after companies that have had, um, you know, poor systems and poor controls. And there have been some fines in the tens, and actually there have been a couple of fines in the hundreds of millions for companies that lacked uh, controls over sanctions and didn't look at who they worked with. Even in cases where it was not established, partly because it didn't have to be, that the company had actually breached the sanctions. So... The point is, though, it's serious. Would you would you expect there to be an, an increase in penalties as time goes on? Shan, people have been asking me this for years, and I've been saying absolutely. You know, I've, I've, been, <laughs> I've also been saying there's going to be lots of EU enforcement as well. Um, it's really slow. Um, I don't know the reasons. I mean, some of them is that OFSI, the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, is not terribly well resourced. Um, you know, that's a, that's a part of it. Um, also, there is, interestingly, in the legislation, if OFSI wants to give you a fine, you have the ability to appeal to the, to, the, to the government minister, who, until recently, the minister himself or herself had to actually make a decision. Now they're allowed to delegate it. So it is a little, it is a little more difficult. 
And obviously at the moment is is overwhelmed, you know, with everything they need to do to deal with the Russian sanctions, because, you know, they're both a regulator and supervisor and an investigative body. So it doesn't fit that well. So I, I'm, I'm not sure. But but if you're in the regulated sector, the FCA really is uh, um, looking at you seriously. And, you know, any European financial regulators, you know, FINMA, Buffin and what have you. Thanks, Matt. So how do we, you know, as you've, you've spoken through the penalties sources, what about licenses? How, how can the entities you right. know, um, get a hold of licenses to allow them to act? So there are two types of licenses. There's a general license, which you can't really apply for, though can lobby for, and there's a specific license. Um, I'll give you an example. A general licenses, you know, will obviously affect everybody and be able to use by everybody, and they must be published by OPSI. Um, recent examples relating to VTB. Um, after uh, VTB, the Russian bank was subject to sanctions, OPSI issued two general licenses in that regard. One of them allowed a wind-down period, allowed all transactions to continue to wind down dealings with uh, VTB, which ends on the 27th, which I think is uh, is Sunday. So that's almost over. Um, what was interesting or emblematic of the different ways in which we do things here and in the United States is that there was something of a gap between VTB becoming subject sanctions and the license being issued for the wind down period. Whereas in the United States, and they do this as a matter of course, as soon as they sanctioned VTB, they issued a general license at the same time, which I submit would be a better way of doing it. Um, you talked about Chelsea. There's a general license for Chelsea. Um, famously, you can, if you go to a Chelsea game, you can buy a pie and a pint, but you can't buy a T-shirt. So, um, the, you know, the general licenses have a, are, are interesting. Um, and then, you know, but most often, you know, you're not going to get a general license to do all of the things that you need to. Often you need to apply for a specific license. Um, and there are limits as to what you can seek to do with a specific license. But for the purposes of, you know, this talk of loan obligations, one of the things that you can seek is you can uh, get a license to enable, by the use of the sanctioned person's frozen funds, the satisfaction of an obligation of that person if the obligation arose before the date in which the person became a sanctioned person, as long as you don't pay money to the sanctioned person. So you can get a license for your loan to be repaid. Um, now, you can get a license does not mean you does you are, you are guaranteed to get a license. That's important. The other important thing is that uh, licenses take some time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think in general, six to 12 weeks, although obviously we'll deal with urgent licenses more quickly. I say in general, because at the moment, you know, some requests for licenses are just being, they're just being parked. They're just being ignored. There is, there is too much for obviously to do the government. I believe the government said that they temporarily tripled the stock, but um, whether that is entirely correct, it's not sure. It's not is not certain. And even if it is, um, whether that is enough uh, is a different matter. Um, but licenses are available, and people do sometimes have to get licenses. Um, there are also, and Fiona will, will talk about this more. I think some 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 agreements oblige uh, a party who is not sanctioned to cooperate in getting a license if the other party becomes sanctioned. You know, to, to take their best efforts. Is is there any 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 guidance on the on the decision making between uh, from these bodies on, on when they will grant a, a a license? Very little, very little. There is guidance. Obviously, Ops, puts out guidance, um, and you know there uh, there is a bit, but there's not much to it. Again, um, the decision of the gov- of Opsi to grant a license or not grant a license is a decision of the government. So it is in theory subject to judicial review. Um, but in my view, unless a license is refused for clearly improper reasons, um, I think it would be very hard uh, to fight the decision not to grant not to grant a license. Um, the main point, you know, um, frankly, the main point that one needs to get across in seeking a license is that you are a purely innocent party, white as the driven snow. What you go, what you want the license for is not going to help the designated person, is not going to help Russia, is not going to defeat the purposes of the sanctions. Um, so, you know, sanctioned persons are not, there are 
certain circumstances in which sanctioned persons can get licenses for themselves, but they're, you know, like basic living expenses, which obviously doesn't apply to, to companies, and where it's something really extraordinary or to pay for their or to pay their lawyers to pay their legal fees. But even that money is not going to them. So licensing is necessary in certain instances, but very difficult. Thanks, Matt. Okay. So let's uh, imagine a situation where your lender's been sanctioned. What's the impact? Maybe you I'll can talk, talk us through. I'll talk about that briefly because I think we're going to talk more about the borrowers being sanctioned. But if your lender's been sanctioned, well, you know, you could uh, celebrate and say, hey, I, I don't have to pay the money back. That's unfortunately not right. You still owe the money. It does not extinguish the debts. Uh, in general, at best, it suspends the, it suspends the debts. Um, one can... Um, you know, the, the, you know, if you owe interest, you con you continue to owe interest. Um, if you have an account with that, there are um, um, you generally you're not going to be able to make the payment. Generally, because you know, if you were to instruct your bank to make the payment to the sanctioned bank, the, your bank will say we can't make this. You know, and in fact, the transaction will stop altogether. Um, so you may be in a situation where you are holding funds that you need to repay. To the foreign bank, if you are if you are yourself a regulated institution, um, you know if you're a borrower that's a regulated uh, that's a regulated institution, you will probably have to uh, make a report to Ofsi about that because they want to report on on any on on, on any frozen funds. Mm -hmm. If you are not a regulated institution, you don't really, although some do uh, some do in any event. Um, there are certain instances, certain 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 financial institutions where they hold funds they can credit. You know, if there's a kind of offset, they can they can actually credit funds that are owed back to that lender. But obviously, those funds remain remain frozen. So that's the you know, in certain with certain non-regulated people, what they do, they have to make uh, you know accounting entries and saying you know we owe this money, you know, and be prepared to pay it back as and when the sanctions are lifted. But I think Thanks, uh, I think Fiona will talk more about uh, what happens with borrowers rather. Thanks, Fiona. Yes, turn, turning to, to to you now. So. Looking ahead, I guess what what's the impact on on loan arrangements if one of the, the parties to the loan arrangement, borrow or, borrower or lender, is is sanctioned? Thanks, Jan. So I'm going to really start looking at the, at the documents themselves. And, and, and before I do that, I'm going to make a massive, massive health warning, which is we can talk in general terms now, but parties should absolutely check what their specific documents say because as as I'll go into some detail on, not all standard documents are the same, and of course standard documents have been negotiated, and, and I'll also talk about the fact that that if you if you if you if you wrongfully terminate, there can be because of quite serious consequences. And the second health warning is that you know is, is that as Matt said. The factual matrix here is fast moving and changing. So, you know, so what is the case today may not be the case tomorrow. And so this is a this is a you know really complex, you know, complex position. But with that, with that lawyer's health warning um, uh, made, um, I'll start with looking at the LMA docs, really thinking about parties who've transacted on LMA standard docs or LMA standard you know, based documents. And here, um, there was a general pattern that things changed around 2014 when there was a reaction in the market to the Crimea um, invasion. If, you, if you're looking at documents that were entered into before 2014, based on LMA standard, then more likely than not, what you've got is um, uh, illegality clause, um, but nothing specific there on sanctions. So you're unlikely to have express provisions which which spell out what happens um, if, if one of the parties is sanctioned and so you are looking really at, at only relying on the illegality clause and what that clause will probably say is something along the lines of if it's unlawful in an applicable jurisdiction for the lender to perform obligations there'll be mandatory prepayment um, that, that that means parties are going to have to grapple with a number of quite specific issues um, firstly, what's the applicable jurisdiction? What's the applicable sanction? That's quite fact specific. And so, for example, it may not be the case that if there are US sanctions, that's relevant. It may be you're only looking at UK sanctions because that's where the parties or, or where the transaction is. You're also looking at what's actually unlawful. It's not necessarily enough that there are just general sanctions. They have to actually bite here. So that will really, again, depend on what stage in the transaction are you looking at. Are there undrawn commitments? In which case, those would probably be, it'd be unlawful for those to be to be drawn, but but it may be different if you're further through the life cycle of, of the loan. 
Um, that, that sort of language also, also draws out questions as to um, questions around licenses and exemptions. It's not necessarily LMA standard, but certainly we've seen examples where parties, as Matt referenced earlier, are under obligations to sort of take steps to mitigate or to deal with sanctions that they are imposed. And that puts parties in positions where it's unclear whether they have to start looking at licenses or take active steps such as that before they can they can walk away. Um, as you'll have seen from that sort of description, hopefully, that can mean it's quite difficult sometimes for parties to really understand where they are. And so what you saw through the evolution of the LMA documents is that post-2014, when Russian sanctions became a real thing, the LMA standards generally developed and started dealing very specifically with sanctions issues. And so, again, in, in, you know, not in all documents and, and often subject to the bargaining power of the parties at the time the documents were being put in, you, you do start to see quite lender-friendly sanctions protections. Um, those will usually be um, a, a repeating representation as to sanctions, um, requiring borrowers to rep that neither they nor any group companies are subject to sanctions, are violating sanctions, are being investigated or targeted by sanctions, and can be broader, can really be uh, much broader than that. And, and, you, and you may see those repeating reps made quite frequently, for example, at the start of every interest period. So they'll, they'll bite quite quickly if, if you've got that sort of structure. Um, I'd also expect to see some undertakings regarding sanctions, and these can be really, really quite broad. So an undertaking um, can sort of be in there where um, the, the borrower group is undertaking that their business won't effectively touch the sanctions. So they're not transacting with sanctioned entities or even transacting in sanctioned countries. Um, and that can be exceptionally broad. So it's, it can be things like, I'm not going to use these proceeds to on-lend to a sanctioned entity, or I'm not going to be sort of, you know, doing economic arrangements in a sanctioned country. And a point there to note that sanctioned country can be a very broad term. It can be a country where any sanctions are imposed by the UN, the UK, the EU, the US. It, it all depends. But, but going back to Matt's point earlier, sanctions can bite in these circumstances where they're not necessarily directly applicable to the parties. So what you're seeing is really a, a swing very dramatically mm -hmm. towards the lenders where you've gone from a situation where perhaps it was quite tricky for, for, you know, for a lender to sort of engage sanctions to, to potentially some language where there is a huge and subjective um, um, you know, point here where lenders do have quite, quite broad powers. Now, I'm a litigator, so I can't help but think about all the problems and disputes that are going to arise in these circumstances. And, and I can't give a, a complete shopping list. But, but just, you know, as we're talking these points through, it, it's clear that there, that there could be some points of tension, again, depending what your language says. But, but you know, if, if you're going to start seeing situations where licenses are granted, where exemptions are made, or where the scope of sanctions changes, it may not be as, as clear cut exactly how these sanctions are, are playing and what, what the impact is. Um, you may start seeing disputes around whether a party is caught or not. These are very complex corporate structures. And if you have a definition, you know, definition of a group, capital G, mm. it, you, know, the, 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 you know, there the, are the lots of disputes that, that, that can arise there. Um, and, and, and sort of drawing that, that point to work, it's one of the points I started on. Um, there are consequences for wrongful termination and, and sanctions don't whitewash parties doing that. It, it, it's a standard contractual um, and position. Um, if a party terminates where it, in circumstances where it shouldn't, then, then the, the counterparty, you know, you could quite possibly have a, a claim for wrongful termination. The limitation period for that sort of claim is, is six years. So it's perfectly conceivable that, you know, whilst perhaps at the moment, you know, Russian parties aren't rushing out to, to bring claims, you know, give it three, four years, they'll be in a position, you know, you know to do so. And there could be some quite interesting questions on, on mitigation yeah, and loss. So just a sort of a warning that even though you're starting to see suites of documents where there are quite sort of broad sanctions powers, that, you know, people still need to think very carefully as to whether they can terminate and not rush off to terminate, because I think that that could cause much more pain in the in the long term. Thanks. And it's important, it's important to add just on the point of Russian parties, you know, whether they would, you know, litigate some kind of wrongful termination. I think Fiona's absolutely right that they're not going to rush out and do it now, but there actually is no lawful reason why, why they can't. Um, there is still, um, there is both in the law and in principles, you know, from the ECHR, you're allowed to bring a case, you're allowed to get legal representation. Sanctions don't stop that. 
Um, what's not allowed without a license is paying your lawyers. Um, so you know we so propose that people get you know get a license to pay their lawyers because and lawyers often find it difficult to get a license. It takes some time. But, you know, it can happen that a Russian party who feels wrong can take to the courts now. There is nothing preventing them. Thanks, Matt. We've, we've had an interesting uh, question coming. I think perhaps this is one, one for you, uh, Matt. So we've, we've, we've spoken about borrowers and lenders, but um, what about the situation where you have an agent uh, holding money on behalf of, of a sanctioned lender? How, how's the dynamics work there? There are a few things. On the first, uh, firstly, the agent is uh, probably, you know, most of the time I say the agent is probably a regulated person, you know, so they will have obligations in the very first instance to make a report to OPSI about the funds that they hold on behalf of that lender. Um, the second thing is that they have to freeze the, they have to freeze the funds, you know, um, and they can't release those funds. If they were to release those funds to the, to the, to the sanctioned lender, um, you know, even if, if they totally belong to the sanctions, that would be a breach of the sanctions. It would be providing funds or economic resources to the, to the sanctioned lender. Um, at the same time, um, if there is an agreement such that uh, the sanctioned lender's account with the agent earns interest, you know, it may, I mean, it's not much, but sometimes they do, um, it must continue to credit that account with interest. You know, so even if it was only expected that, you know, money would be sitting there for no more than a week, if money's sitting there for six years, they have to continue, they are allowed to, and they have to continue crediting the crediting the interest. If the agent receives funds for the lender after sanctioning, which can actually sometimes happen, the agent must credit the funds to that account and freeze them. Um, you know, that's what happens. So the agent will be protected by the law from an action by the lender to pass the funds on to it, because if the agent did try to pass the funds on, that would be that would be illegal, you know, and so it will be protected. But that's what they need to do. So agents, um, if they haven't already, need to open up a line with OFSI mm -hmm. that they can report things to OFSI and they need to make sure that they can properly account for all of this. Thanks, Matt. Um, Fiona, I guess back, back, back to you. Um, We've spoken about uh, the, the lenders uh, and the borrowers, but what if they're, um, the, the, sorry, the rights under the, the documents between the lenders and borrowers, but if your counterparty isn't itself a sanctioned entity, are there other, are there other consequences which are perhaps based on more general disruption and, and other risk that we need to consider? I think there's a two a twofold um, answer to that, that question. The first is points we've covered off um, just in the, in the earlier discussion whereby Sometimes you do see, particularly in, in post-2014 documents, that that um, that sanctions undertakings and reps, and therefore um, the consequences being you know, triggering events of default and and, and, yeah, and, yeah, and repayment clauses, will bite when there's a broader sort of group entity or something like that, that, that or a related party. So you'll find a situation where, under the wording of the documents themselves, um, a company that's related to a oligarch or related to one of the companies will start being brought into these situations. So that's the first way I think, I think that's sort of technical answer. Um, the second way is, I mean, it, again, it, it always depends on the language, but, but perhaps not in loan documents, but certainly in, in perhaps bond documents, is the documents and some other mm -hmm. um, more bespoke contractual arrangements, you may start seeing force majeure language and which, which might become relevant. Now, we all know that force majeure language is sort of very dependent on the circumstances of the case, when the contract was entered into, what the parties have repped in terms of and taken into account. But I can certainly see arguments both inside the sanctions language and outside the sanctions language that parties will begin to be able to act on the basis of the macroeconomic disruptions. Now, mm. that might be see a point that we don't see being run right now, but may become more live over time because we're sort of very here and now at the moment. And I imagine parties will be very closely looking at the sanctions wording and will probably have a, have a, have a, have a, have a way out through that way if they want to. But over time, you know, sanctions don't get removed quickly. It seems like these are here to stay. You can see cases being made out there where there is a significant disruption over a significant time. The ability for parties to use more non-sanctions sort of, you know, you know, ways through this will start to become more into play. I mean, and even things like frustration mm. are very difficult to use, but, but I can certainly see arguments where they will come in if parties don't have other language they can go to, which expressly deals with sanctions. You do, you do also see... Um, that uh, there are practical difficulties for, they can be for anybody connected to Russia. Um, you know, and if you link to a person who's totally non-sanctioned, non um, banks 
uh, are overcautious and in some ways are encouraged to be overcautious with a nod and a wink from the government. And sometimes it becomes more difficult that people with connections to Russia may sometimes find that their, that their accounts are being closed and they can uh, have great difficulties in the current situation. It doesn't you know, prevent them from, doing their, from fulfilling their financial obligations, but this is a real risk as well, which is, you know, I think, part of the aim of sanctions. Mm-hmm. Fiona, perhaps we could talk a little bit more on, uh, about, about the specific documents. Um, what's the brief position under bonds and is the docs and you know other market standards and as a sort of compare and a contrast to loan docs? Now I know the is the world is huge, so perhaps you could keep it keep, keep it in, 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 a, in, a, in a small description. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, I promise I won't spend two hours now walking through the ESDA master agreements, but um, I can keep this and create this quite high level. Again, with the same health warning that you have seen developments over time with these documents. So, for example, there is a difference between the 1992 master and the 2002 master, partly as, 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 as these sanctions issues became more live. So parties really need to carefully check their documents. But with that in mind, um, what you'd expect to see under, under ISDA documents, particularly where they're based in 2002, is a, a sort of a specific illegality termination event, um, quite similar to your sort of illegality uh, prepayment event under the loan docs, but allowing parties to terminate where performance becomes unlawful. Now, um, that will turn on the factual circumstances and what's being asked to do under the, under the particular contracts. The party should never have that very much in mind. It'll be a narrower, I, I expect it will probably be a narrower set of circumstances than the more macroeconomics you can apply under some of the LMA docs. And I'd also encourage parties to look car- carefully at the closeout provisions in there because mm-hmm. um, sometimes they don't always operate quite quite how parties expect them to do. And I think there has been an evolution of thinking under the documents, but, but, but there's still some variations. Um, and then under, under sort of standard bond documents, um, some, some may contain express sanctions wording, um, similar to sort of LMA style, um, where these sort of issues were expressly in contemplation at the time. And that will depend on, on things like timing and also on, on jurisdictions and the kind of businesses that they were in. Um, but otherwise, you, you may be looking at force majeure language, um, which, which you do sometimes see in, in bond documents. And, um, and then triggering, uh, perhaps through the reps, triggering events of default triggers and acceleration provisions. Thanks, Fiona. Um, moving on to our, our, our next sort of broad question. Um, are, are sanctions leaky? You know, what, leaky, are, what, what are the practical, it, leaky is an odd word to use, but um, what, are the, what is the practical and, and legal impact of you know, leakiness in these uh, sanctions? Well, could could we could we ask it in another way? How, how, how do you lawfully get around sanctions? <laughs> yes. um, there was a uh, um, a new phrase that came into the language around 2014, which is the currency toggle. Um, you know, can you can you can you change currencies? Mm. Now, to answer this, let's just let let me let me just step back a minute. You know, and talk about who sa- who the sanctions will actually affect. Um, UK sanctions um, and US sanctions and EU sanctions, they are um, pretty strict laws in that UK sanctions affect any UK person, no matter where in the world they are doing business. Um, they, you know, uh, it's a UK, being, and that will be a UK citizen or a UK registered company. So it doesn't matter if they're entirely outside of the UK, they can't do it. And sometimes this actually makes problems, for example, for UK individuals who are on the board of a Russian company. It can, it can make life difficult. So for them, often if you're a UK person and there's UK sanctions, it's, uh, um, you, can't, you, can't really get, you can't really get around it, not legally. And I'm not going to tell you how to do it illegally. Um, but let's say, you know, you've got a contract, you know, you've got a loan that is repayable in pounds um, or in dollars or in euros. Um, can, you, can you do something um, where uh, you change the currency? Now, uh, I've spent quite a bit of time looking at this, you know, and we've talked to the authorities about it. And if all the person, and, I, and the, the problem is, if it's in UK pounds, Payments are going to have to go through UK banks and they're going to get stopped, you know. So um, if all the people involved, if it's a Russian company, you know, borrowing from a Singaporean lender, you know, and they did it in pounds, can the Russian and the Singaporean lender reach an agreement um, to do it in Singapore dollars? The answer is probably yes, you know, because there you have removed any nexus from the UK or the EU or the US. 
So that is what that is that is that is certainly one possibility. Um, around 2014, there was talk about doing that, you know, so, and I did come across a few, but I don't think I don't think it's happened anywhere near as much. Um, there's a, a question, a related question I see has come in from one of the members of the audience that some Russian borrowers are considering making repayments in rubles rather than uh, than euros or dollars. Um, and obviously that would trigger a breach of contract or if uh, lenders, you and UK lenders can receive payments in rubles. Well, the question, the answer is yes and no. I mean, if the Russian borrower is uh, is sanctioned, then it doesn't really matter what the what the currency is. Its funds are going to be frozen, you know, before uh, its funds are going to be frozen and it's going to need a license to get the money back to the UK borrower. Now, could a Russian to the UK lender could a Russian borrower say uh, more easily get a license to make a repayment in rubles or in you know the original currency in the original pounds? I don't think it makes a difference. And in fact, I think it would be a little more difficult if it uh, seek a license in rubles. Um, also, as a general matter, I think the borrowers could say that that's a breach of contract. You know, unless they unless they were to agree to it. So the only time where this is really going to help is again going back to that situation that I discussed earlier where both lender and borrower or customer and, uh, and, and producer, because I know this actually is, this, is, this issue is coming up in oil sales at the moment, where they are both outside the UK. Um, but that's the way around. There have also been, in terms of other ways around, um, again, lawful, um, uh, there is a position under all the sanctions where if you're owned by a sanctioned person, you are yourself sanctioned. Though the EU has a has a bit of wiggle room about that, but in the UK it's pretty clear. If you're more than fifty percent owned by somebody who's sanctioned, mm. um, you are sanctioned yourself. What if a sanctioned person owns more than fifty percent of a company and then divests? Well, if the, and we've had real life examples of this, um, you know, with some large companies, companies like EN Plus and Letter One, you know, if the if the if the divestment is accepted as correct and proper, then you know, then that's fine. Then the sanctioned person, the subsidiary of the sanctioned person is no longer a subsidiary of a sanctioned person mm -hmm. and they are then free to do it. But it needs to be done very carefully and cautiously and frankly in conjunction with the authorities so that there is no way of uh, accusing that uh, that the, that this divestment is improper um, or some kind of smokescreen or some kind of front. There's also the issue that, you know, to divest, you know, you would have to sell it to somebody who's not uh, subject mm. to sanctions themselves. So if you know, if, if if shareholder A is subject to UK sanctions, they can't sell that fifty five percent to another person who's who's in the UK. That have to sell it to somebody outside. Thanks, Matt. Yeah. So Go just ahead, to add to that. Sorry, Shannon. I mean, I think I think you know a lot of these questions about our currents, things like that. They always have these two components. It's the sanctions and the contract, right? I mean, you know, Matt's talked through the complexities of of, of the sanctions. And just to pick on it, I mean, if contracts allow payments in different currencies, contracts allow payments in different currencies. If they have toggles, they have toggles. If not, they don't. And so whilst there is great complexity to the sanctions regime, you know, it also comes down to a basic question of contract law quite a lot of the times. And I think parties shouldn't get lost in the complexity of the sanctions sometimes by forgetting their sort of basic contractual provisions because those don't change. I agree. You know, often when often often when I'm when I'm advising clients on this, I say, you know, look, what you want to do is fine from a sanctions point of view, but you might have a contract issue. You know, and people sometimes forget the second part. You know, um, uh, a person subject to sanctions does not become a non-person. You know, they still actually have legal rights, and you know, the, the only point is that they might not be able to enforce them early on. Thanks, Matt. Um, we've we've got a lot of questions that have come in, and we we will get to them. We just have our, our final uh, discussion point. Uh, which is sort of looking forward a bit. So if uh, we have a party that's about to enter into a financial contract with a Russian counterparty, how would they go about uh, protecting themselves? Perhaps, uh, Matt, you could, you could start on this one. The first and most important thing um, is to conduct proper due diligence. You know, so I'm saying that even before you know that this is a Russian sanctioned party, if you're, if you're about to enter into a contract with a Russian sanctioned, with a sanctioned party, I would say don't, um, you know, but often we don't we don't know this. Um, the um, the duty of due diligence has become stricter and more difficult uh, over the years, and we haven't really got much more in the way of guidance from the authorities as to how much needs to be done. I mean, I think this is probably the question I'm asked most often: How far should I go? 
how far do I need to go through the chain, through the beneficial owners, through the, you know, where there, where, where it's trade sanctions, you know, how far do I need to go about the supplier to the supplier to the supplier to the supplier? Um, you know, and the question is somewhat subjective, but, you know, in terms of the way the law and practice has developed, it's got to be a point where you can defend it in court, you know, where you can defend it for the authorities, you know, um, where, you know, if the FCA or the SFO or Oxy or somebody else was looking at it, you know, they would not be able to write in their report. They did not do the kind of due diligence that we think that we think they should have. Um, so you need to spend time knowing who your client is, who your who your borrower is, who your lender is, and go up through the chain. Who are their owners? You know, are their own are their owners on the books really the the actual owners? Um, you, if you're involved in Russia for a fair amount, then you need to probably subscribe to a compliance database. You know, um, because some of these people, especially because there are a lot of individuals who have been sanctioned, some of them have ownership all over the place that is not clear and not obvious. And it's not the government's responsibility to say who all the subsidiaries and all the holding companies are. It's actually the private sector's responsibility to find that out for the, for um, for themselves. Um, and due diligence has become even, even more important. Another very recent change, again, last week from the Economic Crime Transparency Bill, some, they were, under EU law, in general, um, it said that a person will not be liable for sanctions if they did not know, uh, for some hanks violation, if they did not know and had no reason to know or should not have known uh, that uh, the person they were dealing with was subject to sanctions. That was kind of imported over into UK law, but now with a change last week where uh, it says that uh, for, for when imposing penalties, that requirements for the person to have known, suspected or believed any matter is to be ignored, it means that basically we're in a strict liability situation. So if you end up lending money to or paying money to somebody whose owner is sanctioned, even if, even if it was well hidden and you couldn't have found it out, you would be liable. You, there will be mitigation in the kind of penalty you know, that, uh, that, that you have to pay, but it just shows how very important doing a good due diligence is. Yeah, and I think I think that bleeds into a second point, which is that you know if I'm looking at sort of what should parties do at this stage to protect themselves going forward, I'm going to sort of lean on putting very friendly provisions in the documents that that help them out. All the points you talked talked about earlier about uh, you know about giving them an out in the broadest possible circumstances, um, so they can t- so you know really have a broad power. But those contractual provisions won't protect them if they haven't if they haven't done their DD. So if they're getting reps in their documents that the parties aren't sanctioned and they're not related to sanctioned parties because they want to use that look going forward if that changes, I don't think they can point to that rep as, as saying look we did our you know we, we had our ducks in the row at the beginning. That won't protect them if they haven't you know, done their DD. So it's important for parties to look at how how to bolster their contractual protections if they are looking at transactions now. But that doesn't in any way. Um, stop them having to be really subject to the DD obligations that Matt was talking about. And then there's also, I mean, I see one one person asked, what what if a lender is not lending to a sanctioned entity, but is aware or has concerns that the purpose of the loan will be to support a sanctioned third party or a sanctioned purpose? I think there is a real risk um, that if the person makes the loan and the loan does go off to support a sanctioned third party, um, then that will be against the law. You could say that it is um, in the terms of the English law, it is making funds or economic resources available for the benefit of the person subject sanctions. Um, it's slightly different with a with a with a sanctioned purpose, um, you know. But there, it's the same thing. For example, it's a it's forbidden to provide insurance um, uh, in respect of certain energy related goods, like certain uh, drilling rigs and things like that. Um, if you're doing some transaction where you know that's what's going to be the end result of it. Um, or you suspect it, and that actually happens, then I'd say I'd say you're liable. Thanks, Matt. But maybe, so, and and I, I mean, but, but more on the contractual protections. You know, they get pretty deep sometimes. You know, and uh, that's you know, people spend a lot of time going through them, and very strong warranties. And like, for example, there are audit rights that can be asked for, immediate information. Um, there's a lot of protection that you that you can require. You, know, you can require license. It's uh, it can be quite tough sometimes, especially in this situation. Yeah, if you're going to have a, a sort of rep in there that, that that the funds aren't being used to be on on lent to a sanctioned entity, I agree with Matt that 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 you're going to be expected to have got some information around that, and you can't just take it on blind faith that that, that, that that's done, particularly in the current circumstances. Thanks, Fiona. Should we move uh, to answer some of the uh, questions that are? Uh, uh, we've had come in so 
quite early on in, in, in the in the webinar, we had a question, you know, what, what commercial risks are there beyond legal? Uh, the example given is if there's a party, if, if a party is a customer of a sanctioned Russian bank, is their involvement with that bank likely to affect their ability to find a, a new bank? I think quite possibly. I mean, you know, there's a, um, no smoke without fire is, uh, is, is what, people, what people are going on. Um, you're going to have difficulty getting your money out of the sanctioned bank for one thing, you know, and even if you can, you might have difficulty putting it, putting it uh, somewhere else. Um, customers of Russians and suppliers of Russians are often tarred with the same brush. Um, you know, even if they are, you know, say non-Russian, say, you know, Indi Indian and Chinese suppliers to Russian companies um, who are subject to sanctions, they may find themselves over time subject to sanctions. Now, right now, we're in a very quick um, moving environment. Um, but in 2012 to 2016, where the Iran sanctions were being ramped up, you actually did see pressure being put from governments and from banks on countries in third, on, on companies in third countries to stop that dealing. Uh, and I think we're gonna, we might see the same thing here with Russians as well, to the extent this continues, which I must say, I expect, I expect it will for some time. Do you want to add something? Okay. No, I think I agree with that. It's very, I think it's a very, a very commercial point rather than a legal point, really, that these things can, yeah, I say, tied with the same brush. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Another question here, which I think we've, we've already partially dealt with, perhaps we could you know, more specifically deal with it. And that's um, if, if, if a borrower is uh, prevented from making its uh, repayments due to sanctions, how does this affect the lender's ability to accelerate, enforce, appoint administrators? And how could a borrower? stop that action? Would it be using an injunction? How would that work? I, I can deal with this and, and Matt have, may have some thoughts. So so there are a couple of different milestones to think about. So firstly, as I talked earlier, if, you, if you've got a, 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 you know, a rep that, 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 that can't be made now, that's potentially like to be an event of default trigger. So the first question comes along, which is, um, is there sufficient majority if you've got a syndication mm -hmm. for there to be an acceleration? That may be a non-question because you may have a single lender uh, or, or maybe a question. And I can see the legal and political issues coming in as to whether there was acceleration. That's, that's an interesting uh, a question as to how these things operate. If I presume you've got over that over that hump and you have acceleration of the documents such that the, um, if you need to, such that the loans become um, repayable, then, um, there, there, there can be sort of you know actions to take um looping back to the point that matt made earlier and we talked about earlier about about russian parties taking legal action in terms of um you know things like wrongful termination um there is no current block on a russian party um taking action to challenge uh an action it considers to be wrong under the documents be that acceleration or be that sort of events following acceleration based on, on wrongful termination or something like that. It would have to get licenses to pay its fees, but there's no formal blocking on them doing that. And so then it becomes a sort of quasi-practical question, which is, are there other things it's got to worry about? And, and will it perhaps challenge now or will it hold that and challenge later? But certainly the sanctions themselves don't stop Russian parties um, from, from protecting their, their contractual rights if, if they've been if they've it's been what you said earlier, right? There's, yeah. there's the two things: the sanctions and contractions, and both both still exist. Yeah, exactly. And we have certainly, I, mean, I think it's outside the scope of this call, but we have certainly seen administrators being appointed over certain entities, and so that you know there can be uh, you know ways around this to, to sort of hold lines on this. It certainly isn't suddenly that these Russian parties have no rights at all. Thanks, Fiona. Um, let's move on to our next question, uh, which is. Well, dealing with the losses caused by sanctions. So we've got the question here is, in the UK, there's a remedy under domestic law uh, for losses caused by sanctions. And how do foreign investment treaties, which, as we know, are designed to protect the assets of foreign investors in the state, and sanctions interact? Perhaps, Matt, you could, you could take this one. I'll answer that. I think there, there are two questions there, and they're a little different. One, can, can you get damages from, you know, civil damages from a private party, you know, if you feel that you are... Uh, are harmed by sanctions. Um, as generally, you know, if you think that somebody has acted in trying, you know, if somebody has acted in compliance with the sanctions, you can't sue them for it, no matter what loss you cause. And that's there in in what we call what we call SAMLA, the Sanctions and Money Laundering Act, in Section Forty Four. A person is 
not liable for any civil proceedings to which they would have been, you know, in terms of actions taken uh, to comply with this. And that kind of comes out of some years of uh, money laundering, uh, anti-money laundering rules, where that has kind of developed more and more. Um, it's very, very hard to sue somebody for damages where they have purported to act in compliance with this. You know, and in fact, in sanctions, it's, 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 it's nearly impossible. Um, so difficult if you're a sanctioned party or if you're somebody else that's, that has been harmed by somebody else's reaction to sanctions. Now, what if, you're, what if you are, you know, a sanctioned person and, you know, you think it's a violation of, you know, an investment treaty? My view is that would be extremely difficult. I'm not actually aware of any investment treaty actions that are based on sanctions, um, you know, some kind of violation of most favorable nation or what have you couple reasons for that. Um, I think one is that sanctions are often international obligations. As I said, they started from the United Nations. So our countries often are required to do that. And if a country is required to impose sanctions, it's very hard to bring an action against it. Um, also, they are kind of political, you know, in the way that taxes aren't. And also, they are um, um, sanctions Losses from sanctions, and I know some people will disagree with me, losses from sanctions are often temporary rather than permanent because these are generally freezers, freezings, not seizures, and they come off eventually. Now, the problem is uh, freezers can last a long time. That can cost money. And I mean, you know, had sanctions on, the United States had sanctions on Cuba for 50, more than 50 years, you know, so there are, there are real losses. There are also... If a person has been wrongly sanctioned that manages to remove themselves from the sanction list, which is difficult but not impossible, then they can uh, they can in certain circumstances get uh, get get damages from the government for um, wrongfully sanctioned. I think that's happened with some Iranian banks. Uh, it's very tough, and you're as I say, you're more likely to get it if you've been wrongfully sanctioned rather than if some you know a bank or a lender or an agent or somebody has been what you might consider overzealous in uh, sanctions compliance. Thanks, Matt. Uh, I think we might have time for a very quick final question uh, in, our, in our closing minutes. Um, the question is, uh, how would one acquire a subsidiary from a Russian sanctioned entity? Uh, the, the, the issues here being you're not being able to pay consideration. And I guess the, the second point being made on structure, could it be put in the trust? There, 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 are, there are two ways. One, you would need to be not subject to US, UK, EU sanctions at all, and you would need to be paying in, uh, in, a, in a foreign currency, you know, so you, if, you're to if you're totally outside. Um, the other way, um, and this has happened, and, you know, I mean, it's going to happen probably with Chelsea, um, you work with the government to get a license, and the money that you pay does go into trust and will be frozen, you know, until such time as the sanctioned person comes up. I mean, I would... You know, I don't know when, but I would expect in the next few months, somebody is going to get a license and is going to buy Chelsea from Mr. Abramovich's uh, mm. well, his holding company. Um, um, and that money is going to sit in a frozen bank account until such time as Mr. Abramovich is out. So it's it's not impossible. And, you know, you know, maybe you're only going to get licenses if it's a Premier League football team. I don't know if you get a license to, you know, buy Tranmere Rovers, um, but uh, it can happen. Great. Well, I think that's uh, all we have time for today. Thank you both for your excellent insights, uh, Matt and Fiona. We are extremely fortunate to have you uh, on today. Uh, to our uh, listeners and our viewers, a replay of this webinar will be available later for Reorg subscribers. Now, if you're interested in a copy of the uh, great sanction summary slide, uh, which Matt and Fiona put together, or if you have any questions for Matt and Fiona or Reorg, please email uh, customersuccess at reorg.com and uh, we can help you out. Uh, as a reminder, uh, Reorg is a global provider of credit data, analytics and intelligence for investors, advisors and law firms. Once again, thank you to our guests, Fiona Huntress and Matt Getz and everyone who joined us today. Take care and stay well. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the reorg.com webinars and podcast page as well as Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud and Amazon. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend. See you next Friday.